Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. July 25th, 2021, episode 198, Mutual with the Omaha. Hey everyone, this is Kevin England. Welcome back to another edition of the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. Back from summer vacation, and the weather in Washington cooperated. It was absolutely gorgeous. 70s every day, beautiful, sunny, no rain. Weather out there seems to be amazing this time of year when we've been out at this time of July or so. Yep, but summer vacation is over. We find ourselves flying back to New Jersey last weekend only to encounter a massive storm. Four inches of rain on our property. We watch the weather come across the state, and right where we are, it just deluged and dumped on top of us. There were massive storms coming together with threats of tornadoes. So we were watching the radar for about two hours, and at one point, two big weather formations came together. And right in the center of them was a hole. And I said to Sharon, if ever there was a tornado, this is it. And I walked outside and it got calm all of a sudden. I looked up, I saw the rotation go over, and darn if they didn't have a tornado right down the road. My neighbors had some problem with their trees blowing down big, massive 200-year oaks. And also some buildings got turned over, ripped apart right down the road from us. How's that for some excitement? Moving past that storm, well, it's back to hot, sultry summer weather here in New Jersey, and I don't particularly like working bees in this weather, but sometimes you gotta slog through it. As the year goes, 2021 seems to be just buzzing right along. I can't believe that we're looking at August just around the corner. And August comes some of those familiar activities that we're now back into the fold. EAS going to happen this year in Kentucky. If you want to go, you got to get your tickets now because they're not selling them out the door. Our county fairs are starting up. We're going to go to the Warren County, Hunterdon County Fairs with the Warren one coming the end of July. And on the horizon is, well, it's time. It's time to get your bees prepped for overwintering. This is the time right now. They have to be cleaned up. You got to take your honey and you got to make sure you do your mite management. Pretty soon summer's going to be past us. For me, I feel like I need to be a little more proactive in the bee yard. I had great enthusiasm for our spring, but as of late, I've just not been in the yard that much. I don't like to be out there soaking wet, sweaty. But when I'm out there, I see a lot of fledgling colonies that are calling out for attention. And this week marks the proper return to stewardship. I got to get back on the horse. I'll talk about that in a local hive report, but there's more to discuss for this go round. So let me transition to a quick overview of what we have in store and then we can get things rolling. Roundtable number one, I did a recent recap of the Marie method for an upcoming presentation I'm doing. And it made me take pause to review the, what is the Marie method? 
the proper one and the current one. I'll explain. Round table number two, Capping's Elixir. Extract, extraction action. Round table number three, Seems Virginia Really Is for Lovers. I'll explain. Round table number four, Stormy Weather. Can I get a witness? We're going to talk a little bit about some of what I just discussed and more. Round table number five, birds, butterflies, and bees have a funny little story. Round table number six, shine a light, shine a light. A UV light made for mite detection. Round table number seven, meadow foam honey. Have you heard of it? It's been out there and people know what it is, but it's somewhat new to me. And I brought some home from Washington. There's a couple other things maybe on the pile. We'll see how timing works out. But topic number one, conquering the basic need. I'm just going to introduce the topic. And topic number two, mutual with Omaha. A reader email takes me down the path of evaluation for the wintering segment of the talk I'm going to give in October. And I'll tell you a little more about that on the closing comments. Of course, we'll wrap things off with the local hive report, throw any odds or ends at the bubble at the end of the podcast, and, you know, we better get to it. That seems rather ambitious. Let's turn around table number one. Round table number one, Daymarie. What is it? What is this thing that sometimes people talk about? It's kind of weird at this time of year to be talking about it, but actually, I'll tie that up and and bring that back to something that came out of this 2021 season. It's separation of the queen from its colony. Daymarine, if I can make up that word, involves separation of the queen and the forger bees from the nurse bees in the brood. The theory is that the forger bees will think that the hive has swarmed, and there's a drastic reduction in nurse bees, and that the nurse bees will think the hive has swarmed if the queen appears to be missing and or there's a drastic reduction in forager bees. So let me take a moment to pause and just kind of set this up a little better. Marie. If you think about Demarie, I'm not exactly sure the proper, proper way to say it. I've always called it a Daymarie. D-A-Y, but I could be wrong in the pronunciation. See, there's a guy named George Damery, lived in the 1800s to the early 1900s, who is credited with the technique of expansion and swarm prevention. One of the first ones to write about it, document it. And so it is with a lot of beekeeping practices, certain techniques are named after the person who created it. This particular technique, because of its multiple steps, becomes one of those things that there are creative liberties with. Let's just put it that way. If I am to say how it's done, let me give it a run through. A proper Marie method. As he described it, commencement of swarming season begins. You begin with your strongest colonies. You transfer the colony from the brood chamber over a queen excluder. One comb with unsealed brood and eggs is left behind between for the queen. 
The remaining brood chamber is filled with empty drawn comb. According to George, full frames of foundation may be used if you do not have drawn comb. In 21 days, all of the comb from the brood will emerge above the excluder, and whatever the queen laid during the period will be on the cusp of emerging, ensuring a constant flow of new bees while thwarting swarming. That's it. Put the pen down. No more to write. That, what I just read, is paraphrased pretty tightly, I might add, right from the article on page 545 from the American Bee Journal from the year 1892. That's the Marie method. Now, that's floating in the ether. Let's talk about the Marie method as explained in modern times. It's evolved to become Marie-esque. I'm not sure if George was there in Kentucky evolving the process, tweaking it, tuning it, and making declarations to lead to the myriad of variations that we have today. But the modern take on this is a little more ambitious, and likely biology had a little hand in the way beekeepers massaged it. So, what is this variation on the theme? It is, to my way of thinking, a larger focus on separation with a nod to creativity for spring management. It's a bit of synthesis for our purposes. Back to the separation of the queen from her colony. Wait, Kevin moment. Thinking out loud, this is truly a role reversal when it comes to what many beekeepers do in the spring, which is splits. A traditional split, like a natural swarm, you often take the queen away and leave the original colony to the daughters. None of that here. Here you are simply taking away the entire bounty that the queen has provided and goading her into rebuilding. Meanwhile, you've hidden the treasure away up above. By way of thinking, George was either devious <laughs> or ingenious, depending on what way you consider that. End of Kevin moment. So back to separating the queen from her colony. The modern take usually has one common expansion of the idea, manipulation of space. You still take the queen and put her at the bottom of the colony stack with a single frame of open brood. You still populate that box with drawn comb and put a queen excluder over it. You still take the nurse bees and the brood nest with all open brood and move it under the roof in the same hive stack. The expansion or evolution, the variation, is that you take other boxes and make a buffer zone between these two. I think what they've discovered in time is that the smell from the queen and the smell from the brood can't intermingle. You need to spread them apart. That's the biology aspect of this to make it work. 
Nowadays, and likely because someone figured out it works better, you divide the dance partners a little further. They call for additional boxes between the top brood and the lonely queen at the bottom. The separation zone can be with drawn comb supplied from hive bodies that are placed in the center, or they can even have foundation. I think if you look at it from the way Dame Marie did it, he waited till the colony was fully exploded to two boxes, and even with a honey super on top. I've seen accounts of the De Marie method from De Marie, where he took the honey box and put it in the middle. That seems goofy to me, but that's what some pictures depict that De Marie apparently came up with. In the end, it leaves the queen downstairs with the foragers and the colony upstairs with resources to build out a population with little urge to swarm because there's space all around. Now, of course, the top box has to have an entrance so those bees can come and go. Let me clarify that a bit. You have a queen excluder, so theoretically those top bees could go down through the entrance the way they're supposed to. In some variations, beekeepers will put a solid board and not allow the top bees to pass through. There you need a top entrance. But even if you did give a top entrance and allowed for the queen excluder where the top bees could pass down through the bottom and come out the front entrance, you'd still find that they're separated enough up there to possibly create queen cells. So this is this synthesis of ideas. Someone figured out if you separate them enough with the divider screen plus the top entrance, you can actually supply the top hive with a second queen and run two colonies. Or you could allow them to develop their own queen and then split them off later. Or you could allow them to develop their own queen and once they've successfully requeened themselves upstairs, you can go downstairs to the old worn-out queen, pinch her, and then pull the excluder and combine the two hives, and the new queen will take over the stack. Or, you can go upstairs, and every time anyone tries to build a queen cell, you can pinch it off. Pinch it off, 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 until they run out, because they have no queen up there. They run out of eggs and material to make queen cells. Then they're hopelessly queenless upstairs. They've lost all ability to swarm, and you pull the queen excluder later in the season and allow the two to join back up, and they become a full-fledged workforce again. And they didn't swarm away. So I guess the proper way to think about this technique is what are you trying to do? And then play out the biology of it. Are you looking to do swarm prevention? You can move the bees up, kill any queen cells that they try to create, allow the queen to restaff downstairs and join them together later when all the swarm pressure has abated. 
Are you looking to make increases? You can allow them to raise that queen or give them a queen and split it off later. Yeah, there's a couple different options you can go here. The permutations and objectives that could be achieved are actually quite interesting to explore. And this is why when you ask someone to explain the De Marie method, there are accounts of the De Marie method, the modern evolved versions out on the internet, and they all vary. The actual standard one is split the colony like we described in the beginning and kill the queen cells. That is, I think, the, the lineage of the De Marie method, not raising queens and doing all that other stuff. Ooh, Kevin moment, this popped into my head. I'm in that kind of day. I did a presentation one time about some topic, and it wasn't the De Marie. When we got to the Q&A part of the session in a large conference room with, you know, or a large uh, presentation hall, a person in the audience decided that it was time for some comment. And it went something like this, and it had nothing to do with the presentation I just got. Me to the audience. Any other questions? Person, do you know about the Demarie video that you have on the Northwest YouTube channel? Me? Yes. Well, I remember recording one and posting it. It was demoed at a spring swarm management field meeting, as I recall. Yeah, I could picture that video. Person in front of the room of 150 people. That video is all wrong. That's not a day, Marie. In a true day, Marie, you would do da 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 da. <laughs> if you're going to post a video about a technique, you should make sure that it's right. You should really take that video down. It's misleading and not a proper way to teach a day, Marie. If you want to know what you did wrong, come and see me after, and I'll walk you through the proper day, Marie. Me? Ah, okay. Thanks. If I get a chance, maybe we can connect on this later. Now, I still know who that guy was, <laughs> and I haven't sought him out for his counsel for the proper method. Maybe I should consider that next time I see him. But the funny thing about that particular exchange was the De Marie method. I worked from notes. I don't usually work from notes, but, you know, when you're doing a De Marie in front of um, 30 people standing in a field, you want to make sure you kind of have some sense of where you go next, because... As you're trying to teach something out to someone, it's easy to lose track of where you're at. So I actually had a written process, which I documented from a website that came from a master beekeeper who taught how to do a day, Marie. That goes full circle, doesn't it? So coming back to that last thing about day, Marie, this was an incredible swarm season this year. People who tried to do swarm management through making splits, found that the origin colony grew so fast, so much, even after taking resources out of it, that it swarmed anyway. I was having this conversation with Bob Kloss yesterday, and the commentary came that if people knew this De Marie method, they may have been able to employ this to prevent swarming. Because separation of the nurse bees is a really important aspect of, you know, trying to solve this problem. I think of it this way. Let's play pretend down the road what happens. 
I separate this colony. I put space between them. I have this plethora of bees right underneath the roof. I'm making a supreme colony. If you know me and follow the show, you know I don't particularly care for supreme colonies these days. I'd rather keep them tight, compact, just enough to do what they need to do and make a little bit of honey. And the other thing is, they start building stuff in the middle between the two because you gave them a buffer zone. What is in that zone? What's the problem? I'll come back to my hive on pad number five. That hive, I can't stand it. It uses the top entrance. So the bees are coming in the top, but they've also discovered the bottom entrance. Now there were three mediums and I wanted to make honey with that box. So I gave them a deep. And then somewhere along the line, I put a honey super on top because they filled the deep with honey. But the bees coming in the top decided that's a great place since we're coming in and bringing the resources to put brood. So there's brood in the top of the box, there's brood in the bottom of the box, and the honey is stored in the middle. What a mess I have, because now I have brood frames in between honey frames, and it's not a conventional where you could take the honey off and harvest it. I've cut to the chase and not cover this in the local hive report. I'm going to have to split the hive now in the middle and rebuild two hives for next season and keep them conventional. And it's all because of that upper entrance. So I closed the upper entrance off yesterday. It's the second time I've done this for this hive, but this time I mean business. (laughs) So before you start thinking about this Day Marie method in that buffer zone with the queen excluder thing, yeah. One other thing. Last last little footnote of this. Drones can't get through a lot of times a queen excluder. So if you do this Day Marie method, you decide this is a neat idea. I'm going to try this at some point. Don't forget to give them an upper entrance so the drones could get out. Or you'll take the boxes off, get to the queen excluder and find dozens of drones dead right against that because they couldn't get through or trapped in the middle of it. So that's probably all you ever wanted to know about the Dave Marie method, but I'm putting it in a presentation and had this moment to relive the the glory of it and thought I'd share my impressions when I came away. Roundtable number two, I call this one honey extraction extract. That's a mouthful. I saw this on Facebook, an interesting question posed. Person said, I just got done spinning my honey. Has anyone ever tried to soak the cappings in vodka to get the honey flavor? Is it worth it? Hmm. If you know and have been following, I've been making extracts in this COVID time. In fact, just bought some more Everclear and vodka to make some new ones, and we scored some hazelnuts, which I've been trying to find and just have found difficult to source, and finally I'll be able to make an hazelnut extract. But I never considered taking cappings wax after you extract your honey and doing some sort of extraction with that. So it turns out, based on one of our local beekeepers' response to that person, 
just give the cappings a good vigorous shake in vodka, no need to soak them, and it washes it off. You just strain it through. Apparently it's very tasty. And the person threw in, for good measure, that they've used whiskey and tequila. So Christine, thanks for that. You listen and you know who you are. I find that utterly fascinating. It's kind of like an extraction cocktail. <laughs> A nice little adult beverage. And it cleans your comb off. I have to wonder, after you're done with that, if you melt the wax, would there be any vestiges of the alcohol in it? That's interesting. But I guess, you know... If you had left that and somehow it got into the rain and it started down the path making mead or something like that, and then you decided you wanted to try and reuse the wax, somewhere in history those events have occurred in that order and somebody has done something and knows the answer to this. But next time you harvest honey, perhaps you can celebrate by cleaning up your mess, taking your extraction, and having a little post-cappings celebratory cocktail. Yeah, that's a pretty neat idea, actually. <laughs> Roundtable number three, Virginia is for lovers of honeybees. This is about free beehives. Now, how about this idea? Free beehives, yes, please. Virginia opens application window for beehive distribution program. In fact, they're in the window right now from July 20th, 2021 to August 4th, 2021. If you live in the state of Virginia, you're a resident, and you're interested in beekeeping, the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services is keen in getting things going for you. Now, there's a bit of a caveat to this. Recipients of beehive units will be selected at random from accepted applications. So I guess they're, you know, cutting their, their potential liability here that 10 billion people apply and they have to supply hives for everybody. So they've done this kind of on a lottery system. But still, that's kind of cool. So there's some stipulations to this. Let me just run through a couple things. You have to be 18 years of older. You have to be a resident of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And you will receive three colony setups, which is a darn good idea. Multiple individuals residing in the same household may submit an application. However, no more than three beehive units per household will be distributed. So get your whole family in on it. Individuals who submit an application for a beehive unit through the program will be registered as a beekeeper with the Virginia Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. So, got to pay to play, right? They're going to register you and keep track of you. Beehive equipment received through the program must be assembled and occupied with a colony of honeybees within one year receiving the equipment. Honeybees and equipment to manage the beehives, such as personal safety equipment, honey processing equipment, 
they're not provided through the program. So they're strictly providing you with a hive stack. There's rules on their website. And I thought when I browsed through the program, what was interesting is you could pick from an eight frame setup, a 10 frame setup. And I even think you could pick a top bar if you want to do that. I'll have a link in the show notes. Virginia Beehive Distribution Program is what you want to look up in your search engine. And remember, August 4th is the deadline, so you got to get to it right around the corner here. But that's kind of cool. Virginia is for lovers. <laughs> How about that? Roundtable number four, stormy weather. This is about the 2021 Severe Weather Watch Warnings Program for 2021 as issued by the National Weather Service. In 2021, it's been a very interesting weather pattern and year. I'm looking at a map and a summary of where the most severe thunderstorm watches have been issued. And if you check out New Jersey, it's got the densest population of severe thunderstorms. As on the outset where that big storm came through, we've had several big storms come through the last couple of weeks. And if I look at it, it's of course east of the Rockies, down through the plains into Texas is the other area, but eastern Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, that entire area has been just inundated with thunderstorms this year. I don't know what the deal is this summer, but maybe it's the weather pattern like Florida. If you look at Florida, it's light blue. Isn't Florida known for the, you know, afternoon thunderstorms? My in-laws lived in Florida. My mother-in-law lives in uh, just north of Tampa. They did have the hurricane go through earlier, or tropical storm, whatever it ended up being. But that's about it. They're not getting hammered, but we've been having thunderstorms all the time. Now, where am I going with this? The other day, we were going to work the bees, and I said, nope, I'm not going to do it because there's storms coming in. You hear this adage all the time. Don't work your bees when the pressure changes are coming from a storm coming through. Sharon said to me the other day, she was standing out in the backyard, working on her garden, and there were blue skies, but towering thunderheads coming and all of a sudden this kind of little breeze blew through and the winds of change were blowing and she could hear visibly over to the left the bees so much so that she said what the heck is going on she thought that there was a swarm issuing or something it had that kind of sound to it she walked up the path and stood there and she said there was a mass return of bees as soon as that weather pattern changed she witnessed just an onslaught of bees coming back to the hive. And she stood there in amazement and listened to the sound and saw the frenzy of all the bees coming back to the hive. They were clogged at all the entrances and so on. As soon as they got in, boom, the weather imploded. Now you hear about this, but she literally witnessed it to the point where she came back and said, you got to steer with this thing I just saw. It was amazing. I was working, of course, but I think that's kind of cool to see that. And 
an extreme event like that should resonate with you that you go out to the bee yard and you say to yourself, boy, these bees are pissy today. You're not thinking of anything. Look at your radar. Look at the bands when you see the, the compression from, you know, the changes of barometric pressure. It could be a sunny day and the, the pressures are changing in anticipation because storms blow in very quickly. Weather patterns change. So this summer, a lot of our beekeepers around here have been saying, you know, sometimes my bees have been fussy. We, we were out working in Valley Crest, Bob Gloss and I, and the bees seemed a little pissy. And we looked up and two o'clock, there was a forecast for storms. Well, the weather changed and there was no forecast, but there was one cell that came right over the area where we were when we were working the bees. And so we had to fully suit up and walk away, get in the car, drive away kind of thing. It's not bad bees, it's weather changes. So if you're in Jersey this summer, and you've been experiencing some pissy bees, and every day the storms have been coming through, just connect the dots. Just a little something to think about. Roundtable number five, birds, butterflies, and bees. I was just talking about this. Sharon tends our gardens and spends time, especially on the one right outside our back door. We have a large window in the kitchen that takes in the backyard. And you could sit there at any given time and see the birds and the butterflies and the hummingbees and all the other assorted wonders of nature. And our primary planting beds are right outside the patio. Now, Bob Kloss and his master gardener wife have conversations with Sharon about plants. I, I love plants, but I'm like a moron when it comes to plant stuff. But he gave Sharon some butterfly weed. and She transplanted that in a spot right, just right of center in that garden two weeks ago so this week she witnessed a monarch butterfly flying in flittering around the plants and she was just head over heels with the fact that the monarch was there she was on the phone she sometimes is out in the yard with her earbuds in talking to her mother telling her about this monarch and the mother said Flip the leaf over and darn if the monarch wasn't laying eggs. And it was a joyous occasion and moment, <laughs> right? She comes in and the baby's on the eggs, da, 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 on their side of the leaves. And, oh, it was the joy of nature. Just have to love when it all comes together. So not only was she happy that she transplanted these plants there, they grew up and then the monarchs discovered them. Well... As I went to record this podcast, you see there was this healthy, plump groundhog. <laughs> I walked upstairs, looked out the window, and there was this groundhog engaged with Sharon's prized butterfly plant. <laughs> Standing on its hind legs, had its arms cradling the plant like a 1940s movie ending where the hero has the girl entwined in his arm and is kind of bending her over it, literally giving her that penultimate, you know, movie ending kiss. <laughs> and it was making love to the plant. <laughs> Gnawing down on those leaves. 
<laughs> I just left. After Sharon was going on and on and on, I felt so bad. I had to break the news to her. Yeah, the perpetrator literally had its arms around the plant, main stem, hugging it while it chowed down on the leaves. With that same look of a movie star hero going in for the earned kiss. When she came downstairs in the morning, there was nothing but a stem left and tears. Not off stalks. I shooed the groundhog away, but the damage had already been inflicted. So it's a sad day in Butterfly Land. Sad day, everyone. What does this have to do with beekeeping? If you think I'm callous, think again. I feel for the plants that Sharon cherishes just the same way that I feel for our bees in the bee yard. And this week, I walked into the yard only to be taunted by a frickin' catbird. Yes, the catbirds have found the new bee yard and are stalking bees like thugs on the street corner looking for lunch money. One had the audacity the other day to take a perch on the waray hive while I was coming up the path. It saw me, turned and faced, and squawked out to its brethren, here he comes. It sat there with that whiny, nauseating screech taunting me, aggravating me, as it looked over the bees, who were dutifully coming and going to the hives, which they're supposed to do behind the waray. I guess it figured before I got too close it should pay attention to get its bounty and score, and it swooped over, grabbed a bee in flight, and it rested on the tall weeds behind the apiary, kind of mocking me. What would you do? I did what any logical beekeeper would do facing the situation. I reached down, grabbed the first big stick I could, and winged it at the bird. <laughs> I had a moment. <laughs> and I got another stick and tossed it at bird. And then, well... For 10 minutes, I followed that frickin' bird around in the woods. <laughs> Every time it landed, I threw something at it. I wanted it to be very clear that I did not care for its behavior, silly as it sounds. It made me feel good. Now, I never hit it, mind you. And I didn't try to do it any harm. I simply wanted to threaten it, as silly as it sounds, and see if I could keep it from coming back. Like, this is a threat. I'm not going to go in this area. But, alas, ten minutes went by, and I looked at my watch and realized I was late for a work call, so I better go back downstairs. And who knows, next time I go out there, it'll probably be sitting there again. So, like the groundhog, the catbirds will be catbirds. And Sharon told me that she saw some on the garage yesterday looking over the apiary. I still don't know what to do to solve this problem. It gets under my skin, but if you've ever heard a catbird mewing, you know how annoying that can be. So birds, bees, butterflies, and groundhogs. Isn't it great to live in the country? Roundtable number six, I call this one the blue light district. Probably a misnomer. It's about ultraviolet light for varroa mite detection. So perhaps blue is not really the right moniker, but when you think about these lights that cast this devilish blue light, what am I talking about? Have you ever seen one of these flashlights? 
I had one of these devices on my someday maybe list, and finally, as it gets to mite season where you're supposed to be checking to see whether bees are going to overwinter and not be overwhelmed by mites, I thought maybe I should try this thing and see what I could learn. I plunked down about 10 bucks or so and bought a UV flashlight so I could check to see if my colonies have mite loads. But let me explain. If you've ever watched the crime dramas on TV, they will inevitably work their way through one of the scenes showing forensic person tracking down body fluids with a UV lighting device. Well, in our case, we're not looking in the blue light district. We're looking at Varroamite feces, Varroamite urine. I guess that's the best way to, to just get out there, get it out behind us. You know, Varroa mites got to go, so do bees. So just like the crime scene when you turn out the lights and walk around the house a bit, you stay out of your bedroom if you know it's good for you, UV light will show some of the hidden substances not visible to the naked eye. Sorry, children. <laughs> that's not I'm sorry, but that's the joke, right? When I told people what this thing was after buying it, everybody's like, did you go upstairs? I'm like, no, that's kind of, ew. Let me just have a Kevin moment here. When you walk around with this thing in your kitchen, you'll see stuff. Anything that's light in color glows with that. I'm not sure what it is, but dust shows up. And it's, you know... I did find interesting stuff on the microwave, germy kind of looking things, and, you know, where you would expect, everywhere you touch with buttons on the stove and things. But fact of the matter is, the house was pretty darn clean, the kitchen. Sharon does a good job at that, and, you know, I do a good job. I'm always kind of wandering around. I'm a little weird. I'm the person that if I'm eating something, there's crumbs on the table. I stop and sweep the crumbs off and put them to the side. I can't stand crumbs on the table in front of me. Go figure. End of Kevin moment. So sorry, let me get back to the actual task for beekeeping. If you take one of these UV lights, I'm told, and you go out to a frame of comb and you shine it on there, the bodily fluid released in... When a, when a varroa mite releases liquid urine, let's just call it that, is visible. And what I've told is, if you have high mite infestations and you take the light and you tilt it to shine, it's usually apparently on the top of the interior of the cell, you'll see it glows purple. Now, I'm kind of dubious about this, but I bought the light, it's 10 bucks, to see how that works. Just want to know. I don't understand that. Is it the varroa mite or is it the bee developing in the cell? What's the difference at some point? You think about the way the cocoons work and all of that stuff too. But anyway, for 10 bucks, it's worth the try. And I can find out whether it works or not. And lo and behold, who knows? Next episode, I might come back and go, you need to spend 10 bucks on this. So it's the ESCO light, E-S-C-O-L-I-T-E, not light spelled out properly. That's the brand. 51 UV 
LED flashlight. Purchased it. I think it was like 10, 12 bucks, something like that. I will get a chance at some point. I forgot to bring it out with me when I was in the apiary yesterday and uh, shine it through and I'll let you know if I see the light. Round table number seven, Menofoam. I hold in my hand Woodring's Menofoam Honey. Woodringnorthwest.com is the website where you can purchase this. It comes from Pure Meadowfoam Blossom Honey in Farmhouse Kitchens, Monroe, Washington, which is near my son's house. So who knew about this Meadowfoam thing? I didn't, but now I do. It's a neat flower if you look up Meadowfoam on the internet. It's white and it has a yellow circle right in the middle of it. And they say that when you see a meadow farm field, it resembles the ocean in the way that the flowers are in the canopy. They up, down, around, swirled, and so on. Now, what's special about meadow foam honey, which is specific to the Pacific Northwest? So given we were in Washington, that's where we found it. It's super sweet in an interesting kind of way. If you taste this honey, it's sometimes minerally in flavor, it's described, but it has distinct notes of vanilla and especially, depending on what kind you get, toasted marshmallow. Now, there was a time several years ago where there was a tasting we had at the Rutgers Tomato Festival. I know. That's kind of weird in itself. Let me explain that. Our club did honey tasting at an agricultural event where they promoted the summer bounty of tomatoes. They always invited us every year because the person from Rutgers who operated the thing happened to be friends with one of our beekeepers. And they thought it would be a neat sidebar to have honey on the side in that event our beekeepers from northwest were invited to bring some of their honey to taste for the crowd and the nishanic apiaries folks brought some honey that had a strong flavor of marshmallows amazing honey well that's what this reminds me of and i've never had honey anywhere else now this is a Kevin moment. If you use a hot knife to extract your honey, sorry, to uncap your honey, let me use a proper word, sometimes if you leave it linger too hard, it caramelizes the honey. It actually cooks it. The knife gets too hot. You smell it burning and all of that. And that imparts some sort of fake caramelized marshmallow toastery flavor. That's not what this honey was. And that's not what this meadow foam honey is. This honey legitimately has, out of the field, a vanilla marshmallowy flavor. Very sweet. Now, what would you do with this honey? I don't think you would put it in your tea. It's going to taste kind of odd. But it's renowned for desserts where you want that cloyingly sweet vanilla overtone. So what I've come to learn is that meadow foam honey 
is sought after for people doing different desserts. I personally think it's pretty good. Um, my son Danny had a jar of it, and we were eating it while we were out there. And, of course, we brought a jar home with us. Thank you, Daniel. Now, after I came home, I kind of looked up some stuff for this and found that some people don't like this taste. They think it's just not high-quality honey. But the cool thing about meadow foam, the plant, is that it has other uses. Very similar to, say, a canola. I made that up, but to do a comparison. The oils are used in cosmetics and other things. So the honeybees get good honey out of it. Unique, uh, sought-after boutique honey. And the plant serves a purpose in the cosmetics industry. So I think that's kind of cool to learn about meadow foam. This is, again, woodringnorthwest.com honey. I don't know if they sell their stuff from there. I suppose I could have looked that up. But if they do, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can order some and try it out. I suppose I should add that this honey is unique to that region and it sells out. So you may or may not find it there. And I did look up a moment ago the website. They do sell honey there, but I don't see that they have any meadow foam for sale right now. So you might have to try when it's in season and get it quickly before it goes away. And I'm sure there's other sites that sell it if you're so inclined to see if you could seek it out and try it. If you ever happen to be in Pike's Market, perhaps when you're in Seattle, you might pay a little more, but they do sell it there. I've seen it for sale. Yeah, moving on, I think um, from a roundtable standpoint, I had a couple other things, but I'll save them for another show because I want to get to the next topic, which is concerning a quest to make mead. So topic number one is the makings of mead. While I was out in... Seattle on vacation. I tried to make it a point whenever I go on vacation to learn something and my focus this go-around was mead. I loaded a bunch of podcasts on the making of mead and it just so happened that my son Danny had a book that someone had given him on mead and I read the book from cover to cover while I was there during one of the afternoons and then had a moment where my head exploded. If I look at what I see often when I read about recipes, how to make mead, it's usually mix water with honey, make mead. They go through all the process of sterilization and what, you know, fermentation of the yeast and what happens and so on. But it's not in harmony with what I know about what modern mead makers are doing. And even this book seemed rather old fashioned. And when I looked at it, it was... 2003, 2004, it was an older book. Now, don't get me wrong, you could make mead that way, but to me, and I've said this before, I'm not making mead unless I get it right. So in the Kevin type A kind of way, I want to study the process and understand it and figure out where mead goes wrong so I don't make rocket fuel. And there's various kind of meads that I'm familiar with mixing in fruits and sweet meads and dry meads and semi-sweet and so on. 
and you start to get into that nomenclature of specific gravity and all of these things, the fact of the matter is, that's all well and good, but how do I not make rocket fuel? That's what I'm still most concerned about. So let me just walk through a process, and then somewhere in the middle, I'm going to talk about where I think the mysteries lie. You know, you clean your equipment and you stage it, you prep all your equipment, ensuring, of course, that it's all scrupulously sanitized. You rehydrate your yeast. You stir the water and honey thoroughly. The added oxygen is a bonus if you mix it up. You pitch your yeast, which is add your yeasts. And then the modern take is feed at intervals, rack, store, consume. Doesn't sound too complicated, but the devil's in the details and you'll end up with rocket fuel if you don't get it right. So the modern version of making mead if you listen to people who are currently in the gold standard, they'll tell you about things called go firm, and they'll tell you about feeding it 24, 48-hour, three-day intervals, and things like that. That's the mystery in the science. So to me, I know, looking at that book, it doesn't talk about any of that, but if you listen to the modern mead-making conversations going on people are talking about different supplemental techniques that are going on and this is the mystery that you have to crack in order to get yourself not rocket fuel so in a nutshell i'm still doing research but this is what i've learned one when you rehydrate the yeast there are products that you could use that help that job go better and there are specific yeasts that you could buy depending on the profile of the mead that you're making that are better suitable for the fermentation process. That's not a mystery, but the fact is there are guides out there that say if you're making this kind of mead with this kind of... Let me, let me stop for a second and talk about one thing. The whole point of the mead is that you're putting yeast in to consume food, sugars, and such. And that consumption, if it goes well, results in a pleasant flavor. That's the alcohol that comes out of it. And it also controls the amount of alcohol uh, potency at the end, ABV. When you think about how that works, different yeasts eat food differently and the food that you supply it changes the way the yeast works so of course when you do the contrast to the most common thing people know about wine when you feed it the grapes depending on the type of grapes and their sweetness and so on you give them this kind lavalin d71 or whatever i made that name up but i think that's the right proper thing because that's the right yeast that fits the profile of the food you're giving it now, when I think about making meads, what I'm learning is that they need the nutrition. They need the minerals and the other uh, constituents that come that are not wholly supplied by just giving them a batch of honey in the beginning and letting them go. The old way, the one that was in the book, is mix honey, water, and let it go to town. 
may or may not work properly because it has to be the perfect marriage of honey and yeast over the specific amount of time where it can eat the proper way, not to mention environmental conditions and all the other things. So mead makers have figured out to feed the yeast in a specific way and then come back and give it more to feed on and more to feed on and more to feed on in small little batches. And because it's not starving, it's not stressed, it's not having issues because it's a living creature, it ferments properly through the whole process and then they rack it off and they end up with a super enjoyable meat. Now I'm just talking about a basic meat, honey and water. Maybe a little bit of something added, but I'm not talking about adding fruits and juices. You could go down a completely different rabbit hole there. For me, I would like to see the recipe of success, the formula, and I'm just getting my footing on this. So my goal this winter, late fall and winter, is to figure out a formula that I'm going to try. Now there's one other thing I want to pivot on. Batch size. A lot of the recipes that you see people typically customarily make five gallons of mead. I don't want to make five gallons and end up with rocket fuel. And maybe we could put it in a race car, but that's not what I'm after. So the other thing that occurs is when you go out and look at recipes online, they tend to be for large batches. And I don't know. I know from food that sometimes if you take a recipe that feeds 20 people and you scale it back to two, it changes the recipe completely and it doesn't work. Can you take a five-gallon recipe and change it back to a gallon recipe? I don't know with this. Because I don't know, I'm not doing it. I've got plenty of time to conquer meat. But what I'm learning is, and I'll say this out loud and credit to some of the folks out there, Sergio Mutella, another one that I follow, has a Tazna calculator, Tazna. You enter the gravity, meaning the sweetness or amount of sugar in your honey, the water batch size, you enter the type of yeast you're using, you enter how you're going to supplement the yeast and whether you're going to use different products, GoFirm or some of the other ones that are out there, and it calculates how much of each to add at specific stages. I am so new to this that I am trying to figure out how that all works. But the cool thing is it exists. I don't have to make it up. And I think that's the secret to getting a base mean that is going to be consistent every time and not rocket fuel. If you've ever had a bad mead where it's given off tannic, oh, awful, such a shame. It's like, it's like burning your dinner <laughs> to me. Just doesn't work. If it's evident, I'm not going to give you a recipe or an idea. I'm still working on the formula. Let's just talk about must. Must is a term for the starter fluid that when you mix the honey and the water together. There's different ways to prepare the must. You could pasteurize it, meaning heat it up to a specific level, high level, or you could just mix honey and warm water and stir it until it's mixed. Which choice should you go? If you cook the honey by pasteurizing it, you're going to 
kill some of the volatile flavors, the volatiles, the flavonoid, flavonoids or whatever they are. <laughs> I'm struggling with words. Sorry, just bear with me as I stumble through this. The question is, is that what we want? No, I want to have all the essence of the honey to come through. So one of the things you could do is instead of boiling at, you know, huge amount of temperature, you can do it at a lower temperature over a longer time. What's the proper device for that? Well, you could think of a sous vide. In the first example, you set your temperature to pasteurize your must at 145 degrees for seven and a half minutes to achieve your objective. Seven and a half minutes. Over like a minute. But another option would be you set your must at 123 degrees and hold it for 470 minutes. Now, 470 minutes, let me do the translation, 7.8 hours. That seems a little impractical. Unless maybe you're using a sous vide. When compared to the seven-ish minutes for the first method. But what you find out is the first one, you'd likely damage your stuff. You could do it on a stovetop, but you're going to wreck your honey. But it seems overkill to do it for eight hours. So maybe you go in the middle. There's a graduated scale. How does 130 degree at 170 minutes sound? Or even 135 degrees for one hour. That beats eight hours. And it still keeps the temp low enough not to kill the flavor in your honey. Which is in your must mixture. So these are the things to figure out. And you have to kind of go back to the beginning, what I said. And take it in stages. And this is where I am. I'm deconstructing the process. Prep all the equipment, ensure it's sanitized. Rehydrate the yeast. Help with addition from GoFirm. Stir the water and honey thoroughly. Add oxygen as a bonus. Each one of those stages, I'm going to figure out a process, and then I'll put the whole thing together and execute it. So the makings of mead, it's underway. If you have a secret formula you want to share with me, and I had contemplated the idea of like simply calling Sergio and say, Sergio, come join me for a basic mead. Just walk me through it. Take me through my logic. But what I wanted to do is I want to do the homework so I can stand shoulder to shoulder with him and understand what the hell he's talking about. In the meantime, if you're a little more advanced, you should be paying attention to godmead.com and their podcast. Mead Made Right podcast by Sergio and some of the others. If you want to get Zen and just listen, you absorb so much by being part of the culture. It'd be like not being a beekeeping and listening to this entire podcast. At the end, you'd get quite a learning from it. And that's where I am. So, making some mead, it's underway. Let's see, this will be a quest. A quest goal. We'll see how it works out. Topic number two, I call this one Mutual with Omaha. Yeah, that's a play on Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. It ties to something I'm working on right now. I am going to go out to Omaha later in October. going to meet with them, uh, be a featured speaker, do a keynote, and so on. 
if you're interested in that. October 7th, I think, is the date we're going out. Bellevue, the suburb of Omaha, is where the convention center is. It's a one-day convention. It looks like a pretty good show, and I'll talk more about that as time goes on. But one of the topics I'll be presenting on is how to overwinter your bees. It ties to a listener mail that came through from Bob Ratz. Bob read recently in an old book, Out of the Midwest, incidentally, by the University of Illinois Press, that there's sentiment that old comb is the answer for helping to overwinter, but in that book, his comment was, why? Why? It didn't really explain, which is the age-old mystery of why would you write a book and not indicate why <laughs> to me. But that's an interesting question, Bob. And have I ever come across the question of overwintering in old comb and why that would be more beneficial? I haven't, have to be honest. But it got me to thinking over the last week or so since that message came in of why would that be something I ran this past Bob Kloss the other day, and I have an analogy, as I tend to work my life in analogies, of going to bed at night and thinking about how a customary bed is made, especially in the cold of winter. Most of us sleep on a sheet over a mattress, underneath the sheet, and in the wintertime, we typically have a light blanket and a comforter over top. If you think about the thermal properties of a sheet, the blanket, and the comforter, the sheet holds the heat in because it's tightly woven to your body. The medium blanket in the middle tends to be the thermal barrier that holds the heat and probably gives it back through the sheet, and the comforter is the barrier to the outside that prevents escape. If I take that analogy, and this is a stretch, but just playing pretend here, why not think out of the box? Maybe that's the same idea going on with the comb. Now I'm going to get a little gross here for a second, but bear with me. When a bee is developing in the cell, it spins a cocoon, and... Prior to spinning in a cocoon, it was fed massive amounts, mass provision. And as it did its business, it did its business inside the cell. But then the bee develops a cocoon and its business, slum gum is ultimately the final result if you've ever harvested comb, is the poo and the excrement and whatever from the bee after it ate, but before it spun its cocoon. And it doesn't poo inside the cocoon. So inside the cell wall, you have layers, very similar to the bed analogy. The bee is inside the cocoon, which is a spun silk interior. Then there's the detritus layer. And then there's the wax layer on the outside. So Bob, I made this up, but I'm thinking that maybe after multiple generations of a bee doing that, 
you know, developing that old comb is different than just a bee in new comb with strictly wax. Maybe somewhere it alludes to the fact that those silk cocoons play a role in it. Now that takes me to another place. I started looking up how does plastic behave, because this is the way I think. That's interesting. Whoa, by the way, what if there's plastic foundation? I go back to a talk I saw from Wyatt Mangum, not Magnum, about how bees overwinter. And also a video I've seen, it's on YouTube, where he can pull the glass away and look at the comb of his hives from the back. Similar to, say, you know, what they do in Switzerland with uh, the hives where they pull the back off and work it from the back in a wagon or whatever they're doing. Wait, let me not speak in riddles. It's kind of, um, I'm talking about a Slovenian AZ hive style hive, like a Dreviville hive, if you've ever seen those for sale in the United States. Back to what I'm trying to get to. One of the key points that Wyatt talked about had to do with moisture moving in and out. Now I'm going to introduce another dynamic. Have you ever been wet and cold? It's a miserable existence. Miserable. Now, there are times if you could be wet and warm, but encapsulated, you'd feel good about that until the water achieved exposure to the cold, and then you'd be wet and cold. Now, we all know the adage, moisture kills bees, but moisture is also required for life. That's the way it is. We don't survive any organism without water. And so Wyatt was explaining how wax plays a role in the wintertime to either absorb or give off moisture to maintain a specific humidity, if I could use the word generically, in the colony itself, inside the nest. How does that play a role with old comb? Does any of the material that's not there, if it's new comb, brood comb in particular with the debris and the cocoons, keep or hold moisture? Now, if you've ever seen bees in the winter, they are head in the cell and the other bees are generating heat. So they generate heat. I'm, I'm talking very generically here, but... The ones that do the exercise generate the heat and warm everybody up. And the warmer bees sometimes go into the cell and transfer the heat from their body to the wax. How does that play if there's moisture in the wax? If the wax has absorbed the moisture and there's cocoons and all that other thing, then maybe you could keep that moisture level warmer, which will retain the heat, versus the cold water, which makes things chilled. The answer is it's a big soupy mess in there from a physical standpoint of what's going on in the substrate. Now, coming back to the aha moment I had while thinking through this, where does plastic sit in this? One of the interesting things about plastic 
using a cooler for an example. Why are cooler exteriors made of plastic? If you go back to the conversation about the sheet, the blanket, and the comforter, the exterior of the cooler is made of plastic because it doesn't transfer heat in the way that other substrates do. Let's say that the cooler is made of metal. It'll transfer through the metal and give off the heat and so forth. I'm so far down a rabbit hole right now, my brain is spinning, but I begin to start putting together that question. What if the heat inside the colony is supposed to transfer through the comb and it gets to that plastic barrier that's the mid-rib because you've used plastic foundation and it, it comes to a stop? That's an interesting thought. Nobody's ever talked about plastic in the dynamic of overwintering. When you get into a situation where you're in Alberta, Canada, it's 20 below every day. Those little nuances of difference in cold thermodynamics of whether the plastic holds the cold, transfers the heat, does all of that stuff, in contrast to honeycomb, pure wax, that's an interesting idea. And I have to wonder if anybody's ever ventured that deep down the rabbit hole to think about it. So coming back, Bob Rats, to your question, why? Why does the sentiment of old comb do better for overwintering? My thought is somehow the materials in that comb could potentially play a role in heat retention or moisture retention that has something to do with that. But it also gives me that side thought of where does plastic play in that role? versus wax in overwintering. If the bees go in the cell, let's do this. A heater bee gets into the cell and starts to transfer their body heat into the wax, and then the wax holds it and keeps the bee warm. How does that work if there's a plastic midrib? Let's say that a bee is headed into a cell and transfers it to the front of the cell. Does it transfer into the bee across? Probably not with plastic but with wax it might. All interesting thoughts. So I am going to talk about overwintering when I go to Omaha. And the things that we do here specifically, I want to talk about my experience so far with polystyrene hives, insulating the top, and all of that. If you're anywhere in that Nebraska area and you want to come visit, I'm sure their registration is either open or opening soon, and you can come plan a visit out there for October, since your bees will be probably nested away for the year. I'll speak more about that as the time comes, but I'm looking forward to that trip, and I want to say thanks to uh, Mike from beehiveguys.com and the team out there in Omaha for the invite. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. So Bob Ratz, I hope that answered your question. I, I thought that was a cool question to contemplate. I have no idea whether I'm on the mark or not, but that's what I was thinking of would cross my brain when I started to delve into the question that you posed. I do have to say this as a footnote though. I would not cherish super old comb. 
I think broodcomb is broodcomb is broodcomb, and eventually after a season or two, it would have all the properties you would need. Now, I've seen some really old broodcomb stuff, mahogany, stiff. Yeah, maybe that stuff overwinters better, but it also is a liability. I am so on the camp of fresh comb makes fresh, healthy colonies that I would not encourage anybody to take this information and say, I'm not going to get rid of my old comb. That's uh, fool's errand, I think, and you should constantly be rotating your comb out to keep any of the nasties out of your environment there. So just wanted to put that little footnote in to close that off. I have reached the bottom of the stack. I guess uh, time to turn and close the episode. Let's talk about the local hive report, what I have going on. I said in the opening I need to get with the swing of things, and I came back from vacation with the idea that I have a bunch of work-in-progress hives. You know, when I talk about 20 colonies, they're not full-size colonies, so let me just you know, I, sometimes that natters at me. I don't want people to think I'm managing full 20 colonies. I have nukes and other things, queen castles and such in state. If it has a queen and it has brood and it has a colony, it's a colony. It's not a hive. From a full-size standpoint, I have probably 8 to 10 of those 20. I went through all the colonies, and it's a mixed bag. That's the, I should have called this episode Mixed Bag because I've come to realize that every single time you do hive inspections, whether you, if you have more than one hive, you have a mixed bag. <laughs> that's my thought. Everything that you do, you find something that's deficient. And you find hives that are running in normal state. And the more hives you have, the more you find of that. I have one starter colony, it's three frames of bees, that is loaded with European foul brood. Now here's the thing, if you go back a couple episodes and you think about, I had a European foul brood in the beehive on pad two. I transferred one frame from that beehive, unbeknownst to me, over to the hive in pad number one, because I thought they needed brood material for a queen, then found out it had European foul brood. So I inoculated one. At some point, my thought was, they'll overcome that single frame. Damage was done. There was not much I could do about it after I discovered it. Let it ride. But I needed to make splits to do queen rearing, so I pulled a bunch of frames out of number one, and I made queen castles with them, three frames at a time. That frame that came from pad number two, you're doing the math, into pad one, ended up in a queen castle, and guess what? That colony has European foul brood. So I took the old pad two box and shook it out in the yard and discarded all the comb. Literally put it in the trash and got rid of it. Now I have to do the same for this queen castle. I took some photos of it the other day. I found a bee removing a larva. I know for a presentation standpoint, I've always wanted a picture of a bee pulling out a corroded larva and a gawan. I guess that's about the only good thing I can say about this European foul brood queen castle. The bad news is, it's in one of my six frame polystyrene hives, 
with a divider, with a colony on the other side that's as healthy as could be in Queensland array. So this week, run, don't walk. I need to take action on that box to make sure that one side doesn't get over and infect the other side. No reason to think that should happen except that if some of the bees coming and going on that one could get over to the other. Now the question lies, what do I do with the bees inside that box? I don't want the comb, I don't want the brood, do I want the bees? In the past, for the other hive, I shook it out in the yard, and I don't see, it was a risk, European fowl brood throughout my apiary. I don't know. I'm still thinking about what I want to do with that. I actually thought if there's a laying queen in there, I need a queen for one of my other hives. And if she's not impacted with European fowl brood, maybe if she was put in a fresh colony, she could get a good start. But boy, that all seems kind of risky. I, why would I continue to see if I could pass this bacteria around through my hives? From a hygiene standpoint, I should just cut bait. It's three frames. I'm saying this all out loud not to confuse you, but to let you get into that situation and ask yourself, what would you do when you're facing this situation? Is three frames uh, an asset, especially if they're rife with European fabric? They're not. So don't be surprised if I come back next time and tell you I called this thing. Next to it is a six frame box with no queen. It had a couple queen cells before I left on vacation, and they didn't make a queen. Out in the front, one of the six frame boxes made themselves a queen, but she's not laying yet, but they prepped the area. I could see the hole, the bees are calm, and I found the queen wandering around on the cage, or on a frame. So I think any moment now that one's gonna get going. And if so, I could take the six frame in the back that has no queen and do a combine. Off to the side, five-frame nuke. Put one of the queens we reared in it. Going to town. Looks great. Ready for a second box. In the back row, I have my three eight-frame boxes that hold nine frames. All of them look good. They were splits. One of them was a swarm. They built out the bottom box, and they built out the top box. And I really probably, for fall, could put a honey super on them and see if they'll draw a comb, which I don't think they'll do that much. But if I had, and I do, honeycomb that's drawn for honey supers, they might, if we're lucky, get a fall harvest. My concern is there's probably not enough of a fall harvest in my area for them to fill it and cap it. So... But we'll see. We'll see what the fall harvest looks like. I noticed some asters along the road the other day. And looking out, the field that was a cornfield next to where I used to have the apiary is nothing but plants now. They let it grow natural. So I think there's better forage literally in the yard, neighborhood, next door. Like it used to be when I first started. And I always got a fall flow. And I want to see if that field fills with goldenrod. And if it does, I'm going to have acres of goldenrod sitting right next to the apiary. Which means that I might be able to see a fall flow. How cool would that be? I'm going to kind of be all over the place. One of the bad things that occurred this year for my apiary is that the grass died. <laughs> it just popped in my brain. I'm 
visualizing the apiary and I'm seeing dirt. The four inches of rain made everything a muddy mess because it splatters. The grass I planted looked great in the spring. It grew well in the early spring, but as soon as summer came, it, it all died. Almost all of it. I guess, you know, I bought a partial shade grass. There's no partial shade about it. It's full shade with speckling of sun coming through the canopy. So this fall, I have another thing of grass to plant, which is full shade and drought tolerant. I'm going to try it again, but I'm waiting till fall to plant my grass. But boy, it sucks to walk around in the dirt. Coming back to the hives. Still feeding the waray hive, trying to get it to build. And I need to feed a bunch of the other hives. Some of these hives that are partially started, they, they need to get propped up a little bit if they're going to get to winter. I have not talked about mite treatments. I've decided that once again, I'm going to be proactive about my mite treatments. I know I have mites. I've done mite checks. I've seen mites in there. I understand the dynamic of the threshold. And from the samples that I see, I have a couple mites to a bunch of mites in the different samples. So the adage for me is if I find some mites, there's mites in everything, and I'm just going to treat them. I've decided for summer I'm going to do Apivar. So I went through every hive that doesn't have honey on it and put Apivar strips in. I also walked through the yard and looked at hive that have honey boxes on top. My problem was prior to vacation I needed them to be finished and capped. They're good. I think I have three or four boxes to pull. And then when I pull them, I'll put Apivar in them. So those hives will be a week behind everybody else. I went over to Valley Crest and checked on the hive that's over there. Last time I saw it, it was one single box and a new box on top with foundation. The hive is the, the sorry, the field is loaded with flowers. It's spectacular. If you've seen my Instagram images, you'll see what that looks like. Black-eyed Susans and butterfly weed or whatever it is, I, I'm terrible with plants. But as far as the eye can see, and bees and bumblebees and incredible. It's incredible. i got to take a moment and say, if you've ever stood in a field of wildflowers and looked at the diversity of things feeding off of them, it's incredible. It's amazing how beautiful it is and how much food there is, just a single field. Mr. Kloss and I were discussing that if everybody took a small patch of your yard and created this, what a, what a bounty it would be. The world would return to beneficial insects all over the place, just by this one field of example. That hive looks great. I probably should feed it, but I'm not going to go out there, and I'm hoping that the bounty of this forage will help it get through to be two full boxes so it'll overwinter, but I put Apivar in that one too. My thought is Apivar for the summer, mite checks again in the fall, and if need be when the weather is a little down, I'll use Formic Pro, which I have. I didn't want to put Formic Pro in because for this foreseeable stretch for July and into August, it's going to be in the 90s. And I don't particularly care to hammer my hives with that stuff this time of year. 
So I think it's more suitable for a September review. So if I get to September and find that the mite loads are up, one, I'll be truly disappointed. There's conversations about whether Apivar is effective anymore. I certainly hope from a risk standpoint that putting it in this summer doesn't mean that my hives are not going to be in overwinter state because it didn't knock the mites down. So fingers crossed that Apivar is going to be effective. It's a fresh new pack put in. Kevin moment. If you have Apivar and you open the package, you have to use it right away. Do not store your Apivar for next year. It doesn't work. It's like a dog collar. Once you put it on, it runs its course and it goes out. You can't put it in Ziploc bags. I like to take time every season to say that to people because if you thought, well, I'll use two now and save two for fall and put them in. No, as soon as you open it, the, the meter starts. So if you open an app of our package, use the product right now. It's, it's expiring in 56 days as soon as you tear the, the package, even if you put it in Ziploc bags or try to contain it. They specially seal that in the foil at the factory. That's the only way you're going to retain it. You can't do it at home. When I think about um, Formic Pro, I know some people are using it. It's okay. Just, you know, be very careful. Make it cold before you put it in, like put it in the freezer and put it in at night where the temperature isn't as high in that first beginning 12 hours and you can get away with it. But I think um, from, from my standpoint, well, one thing that kind of sits squeamish with me is I hate to put that synthetic miticide of Apivar in my colonies with my fresh new comb that I've created. I really thought long and hard about that. But given the temperature constraints and so on, I just couldn't envision a different way to do it. I did think about doing oxalic acid vaporizations, but I don't know that the science is there yet. Now, Randy Oliver, I've understood, is continuing his quest to do oxalic acid through sponges and substrates. And I know someone, I won't say out loud, who's trying that this summer. So I'm curious to find out how that's going. Local hive report, it's typical for this time of year. Got to proactively just oversee everything. And we have crossed that threshold where you should be doing your mite management in July to make sure that you can subsequently get to the beginning of August and have healthy rounds of brood leading to the end of October for your overwinter. If you're not there yet, get with the program. Last thing I was going to talk about is the Lanes Hive. If you're not familiar with the Lanes Hive, some of you may not be, it's a long horizontal format hive with deep frames. The frames are 20 something inches deep. My Lanes Hive has done spectacular this year, it's full of bees. And there's five or six frames of honey in there. I'm going to pull that honey this year. 
I have not touched that hive in the past, but this year I'm going to do it. I want to be able to put a mite treatment in there and I didn't do it. I'm going to give them frames of foundation. One of the things I did was run wire through my lands frames that I'm going to put in there. And I have foundation that came over from Europe. You could do this method where you touch a battery to the wires and it helps melt or create heat that they embed into the wax. I was discussing this uh, before and I still haven't done it yet, but I think I'm going to try a 9 volt battery and see if I can get enough juice out of that to embed the wires. You can't use a car battery because it would like, <laughs> that wouldn't work. So this week, I'm going to finish that job so that I could pull that honey and do a crush and strain on that. I asked Bob Kloss to help me out. I borrowed his crush and strain setup. It's two buckets with holes. You could see it on the gadget garage for Northwest. I went to Home Depot to see if I could buy food grade buckets. They're out of them. They don't have them in stock. They don't know when they'll have them in stock again. I suppose there's other places you could source them from. But in that moment when I was looking for them, they didn't have them. I want to make my own crush and strain setup. So somewhere along the line, I'm going to try and come across those buckets and emulate what Bob had and then give his stuff back to him. I was over at Bob's Bee Emporium looking at the stuff Bob has going on. His yard looks great. Bees everywhere. Different kinds of hives. His laying hive is doing great. He told me it's spectacular. His top bars look great. It's kind of cool. Both of us have had a really good year this year in getting our bees through spring and, and to a good state here in the summer. And uh, yeah, his yard is just going crazy. So he's going to make a lot of honey this year for sure. All right, local hive report check. Let's go to closing comments and wrap this thing up. As I close the episode, just thinking about this time of year, Warren County Farmers Fair starts July 31st, runs through August 7th. Always fun to go out to the fair, meet with people. This is my little ditty to everyone. If you're involved in a beekeepers association this time of year where they're doing things to do public outreach and fundraising, support them. Go out and be amongst the people. One of the great things about going to the fair, I always think, is being, you know, cooped up in a barn with others selling honey they're all beekeepers and you have a great time talking about how their year went and you learn so many different things just by collaborating with other beekeepers you know the theme when beekeepers go together so somewhere along the line i'm hoping to sign up for the slot if the schedule allows for warren county and or the hunter county fair coming up and fair volunteers are needed so support your local club when they're doing outreach Speaking of outreach, the Ringo's Grange nearby to me has asked us to do a talk for the public. So they're going to just have an open public session where we're going to talk about beekeeping, the benefits of bees, a year in the life in the apiary. That's going to take place August 7th. I'll be over there. I'm going to bring an observation hive. And then August 11th, it's the event, August 11th through 13th, EAS in Shepherdsville, Kentucky. Bob Kloss and I are going to drive down there. I heard Russ Sprangle send a note saying he was there. Russ, 
I'm in Envy. He sent a note saying that he recently came by way of a beekeeping course that he taught to have a European hive. <laughs> One that I want, I've talked about. That's really kind of cool. Congratulations, Russ, on that. He's He's got a, uh, well, it came from Thorns, a national hive, if you know what that is, the type they used and we saw in England. I'm on the Friday talk schedule for EAS. I'm giving a talk on swarming. I'll say it again. If you want to go to EAS, you need to register because they don't do walk-ins, and I think the registration ends on the 31st. So make sure you get it in. Three-day conference. Be nice to see other beekeepers again. You know, it's not lost on me that this is episode 198. And my intent is probably to record 199 on the cusp of going down to EAS. Maybe we'll do 200 live from the show. That would be kind of cool. If I can sneak around and talk to some of the folks from EAS and see if we could score a room and just put it out there like a live meetup. Maybe we'll, we'll grab a room at one of the nights and see if people want to come and do a live panel. Bob Kloss and I can be up front just talking about different things, reflecting on the show, and take questions from the audience. So if you're going to EAS, uh, all three of you that <laughs> listen that are going to be there, we could just maybe have a little round table and do uh, episode 200 celebration. That'd be kind of cool. Neat little milestone to get to. So listen for 199 on the way down, and we'll look to put something up on the website, the Facebook page, and whatever else we have to let people know about it. But I think that's kind of neat. Yeah, I'll have to work on that. I'll have to make sure I get all the recording equipment and stuff set up so that we can do that and figure out how to post it live and Twitch TV or whatever, something. I, You know, I do live broadcasting for sim racing, so you think I'd be able to figure this out. I think that's a good place to uh, roll up the carpet and move along. So thanks. Thanks for listening. You know, one of the things I, I wanted to say, I was going to close it out, but something came to mind, and I didn't want to forget to say this. I listen to the show. I listen to the show in my head as I record it. And there's so many times when I'm saying something and I finish and I'm preoccupied when I move to the next thing, thinking about what I just said and saying, you know, I could have said that better. I could have done this better. But I have learned over time to live with the messiness and let it roll. I don't know why I'm sharing this at this moment, but my reflection is that I go back sometimes to listen to shows and I say, you know, could have done that better. But most of the time, a lot of what I'm reporting and what I'm talking about is what's in my brain. It's what I'm thinking about. It's what I'm mulling over and stuff. So it's usually mostly pretty well hashed, but every once in a while, I just wing it. I come up with stuff, and this episode, like some of the others, is a little more live, a little less scripted. When you hear me talking about research and things like that, you, you'll know that my general MO is to be prepared, but when I'm talking about management practices or things going on in the yard or retelling events, that's kind of just coming out as it comes to the surface, and 
I stumble over my words. I choose the wrong words. I say the wrong things. But I think in the end, y'all know what I mean. So I let it ride. It's a little bit of the fluffiness. If I were in a professional studio and didn't have to do all the other stuff or whatever, I think I'd have some more due diligence. And who knows, maybe someday when I retire <laughs> and can do this as a plaything instead of a, a late night hobby, I could be more professional about it. But I guess it gives you a little sense of who I am and good, bad, or indifferent uh, what, what it sounds like. So, yeah, when you find yourself rambling at the end, it is time to shut it down. But I don't know, there was just a moment in my brain that said, share that thought, because I I sometimes go back and I'm guessing people listen to different things and say, that was kind of weird, or that was not structured well, or I didn't quite get it. Well, if you've ever done this live, tried to do these type of things, you would understand how complicated it is. That's the feedback I get by a lot of people I've coached over the years who've started a podcast. They're like, this isn't as easy as it looks. And I don't know why I decided to throw this in at the end, but I did. And there you have it. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, they can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you on episode 199, just before we go into EAS. Take care now.